This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. At one point some years back on this program, we went on a kick where we were introducing new words to the show because, well, we like, we like novel words. And uh, we're going to make uh, a brief return to that practice for today's program. We're going to start out with a new word from the English language that actually is borrowed from the Scottish, I guess you'd say, subset of English. The word is cockwomble. It is a noun. It refers to a person, usually male, who's prone to making outrageously stupid statements and or inappropriate behavior while generally having a very high opinion of their own wisdom and importance. So I think for the remainder of this program, we're going to refer to President Cockwomble whenever his name comes up. Oh, and that, that's one word, C-O-C-K-W-O-M-B-L-E. Don't be confused. And I'm afraid we need to start out today's program talking a little bit about some of the, uh, the attributes that make the president a cockwomble. Here's a meme being sent out currently. I think I got, saw this on Facebook. I hate to admit I'm on Facebook, but oh well. These are extraordinary times, and they may call for extraordinary measures. I forget who sent this, but it, it shows President Cockwomble on February 28th saying, The press is in hysteria mode over coronavirus. This is offset with a Trump ad dating to April 13th, where the quote is, the media minimized the risk from the start. And yeah, that's what a cockwomble does. In fact, this leads us to an unprecedented development here on Radio Parallax. We're going to go to the good, the bad, and the ugly. And the thing is, the good, the bad, and the ugly are all one item. It was a good week for passing the buck, but a bad week for accepting responsibility, and an ugly week for anyone who likes his news to be grounded in reality with this single item. In President Cockwomble's two-hour and 23-minute-long diatribe last Monday, the longest press conference, if that's what you want to call it, yet about and during this coronavirus crisis, among the statements made were that The painfully slow rollout of coronavirus testing in this country is rooted in the fact that, quote, we inherited a broken test, unquote, from the Obama administration. Now, the reason this is called a novel coronavirus is that it was unknown before late last year. President Obama was last in office on January 20th of the year 2017. Therefore, you must note that the very first test anyone ever developed here on planet Earth for this coronavirus, this new novel coronavirus, came out in January of 2020, just about three years after Trump's inauguration. It has been long assumed by many, many people that Donald Trump was intellectually and temperamentally unsuited to be president of the United States, even before he took the reins of office. And I think it's fair to say that except to his most rabid base, nothing that's happened in the last three years has proven that notion wrong. 
And I'm sorry we're starting off the program like this, but we have to. We've been talking for weeks about how Donald Trump is going to make political hay as best he can out of this fiasco, and he's going to blame everyone else but himself for the fact that America is now by far and away the world's number one country in terms of coronavirus cases. But let's just let's just take a, a minute or so or, or two to go through what are described as the 39 most absurd lines from Donald Trump's off-the-rails coronavirus press briefing. This is analysis by Chris Siliza, CNN editor-at-large. We're not going to go through all these by, by any means, but there's a few we should hit on. One of the first statements he made was in reference to the devastating tornadoes that had ripped through the South. Said President Cockwomble, It's a tough deal. It was a bad, bad level. That was a bad group. That's as high as it gets. It was a bad grouping of tornadoes. Something incredible, the power. Noted Mr. Saliza. That was a bad group. That's as high as it gets, and away we go. Moving on to number six. The president was quite hot, and that's why he went on for two hours, because the New York Times had done a long piece explaining the failures of the administration to deal with this viral crisis properly. Said President Cockwomble, and so the story goes the New York Times is a total fake. It's a fake newspaper, and they write fake stories. Said Saliza, the New York Times story was based almost entirely on documents and emails, not anonymous quotes. So did someone fake all those internal memos and emails? Quote number 10, they're not able to fill the beds. They needed two hospitals. We built one. It was perfect. Said Saliza, what does the perfect building of a hospital actually look like? Your, your guess is as good as mine. Number 11, but nobody's asking for ventilators. Sleazy just quotes the Washington Post, April 9th headline. The ventilator shortage is here. The medication shortage is next. How about number 17? Governors should have had ventilators. They chose not to have them, said Saliza. So any initial or current ventilator shortages are due to governors not adequately preparing for this pandemic. The big takeaway here, Trump did nothing wrong. In fact, quote, everything we did was right, unquote. And then when later on, when discussing how it was he who may give the order to send people back to work, he said, quote, when somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total, and that's the way it's got to be. Said Saliza, this statement should terrify every single person in this country. Of course, he followed up with, the authority of the president of the United States having to do with the subject we're talking about is total. Said Saliza, well, Trump cannot rescind executive orders made by governors in states related to school closures or stay-at-home orders. Also, isn't Trump a Republican? And didn't Republicans build their party on a limited federal government and expansive state governments? Doesn't anyone notice this? Trump, Trump went on to say, we're going to write up papers on this. It's not going to be necessary because the governors need us one way or the other. And ultimately it comes down with the federal government. Said Saliza, there in fact have already been papers written up on why the president doesn't have total authority. It's called the U.S. Constitution and specifically the Tenth Amendment. And yes, Saliza does mention that Trump said, what we inherited from the previous administration was totally broken, which somebody should eventually say, not only were the cupboards bare, as I say, but we inherited broken testing. Now, we have great testing. Noted Saliza, to be clear, coronavirus is an entirely new disease for humans, so it is literally impossible for the last administration to have had tests for it, broken or otherwise. 
All right, we had to start out the show like that because, you know, everything else in the world is being pushed to the side and politics is winding its way into all aspects of our life right now. The fact that Bernie Sanders withdrew from the race and the last issue of The Week magazine made page seven. Yes, page seven has out of the running. Senator Bernie Sanders dropped out of the Democratic presidential race this week, clearing the way for the nomination of former Vice President Joe Biden. It's just worth reading a little bit of this. Although Sanders commended a powerful fundraising juggernaut and filled arenas for rallies, he did not manage to win over moderates or Biden's strong base of black voters, especially in the South. He also failed to bring out a historic turnout of young supporters and never recovered after losses in 10 of the 14 Super Tuesday states. It closes by noting Democrats fear a repeat of 2016 when many Sanders' supporters refused to rally around Hillary Clinton. Now, I have to admit... Uh, We see reason to be less than overly enthusiastic about Joe Biden. But Biden has several key advantages. One, he's not nuts. Two, we have no reason to suspect he would try and run the federal government by himself. And three, we have every reason to believe that when he, he gets advice from other people, he at least sometimes listens to it. President Cockwomble has to be put out to pasture. And if Joe Biden's the tool we're going to need to get that done, well... Whatever. It's got to be done. By the way, if you're hearing this on a radio station, do note that that is the opinion of the host of this program alone. does not in any way necessarily reflect the opinions of the station, its sponsors, or or anybody else, really. But uh, say what you want about Joe Biden. I'm pretty sure that if a stimulus check was going to go out and Biden was the president, he would not insist that his name go out on it, even if it delays the checks. Which is, in fact what President Cockwomble is insisting upon. Writing on this in Vox, Caitlin Burns noted that the president is not an authorized signer for IRS disbursements, so his name will appear on the memo line. Actually, this piece is worth quoting from. Between the multiple Trump Towers, Trump Plaza, Trump International Resorts, and the now-defunct Trump Stakes, it's clear President Donald Trump has a penchant for putting his name on things. And that predilection has now been extended to include the coronavirus stimulus checks. The Treasury Department on Monday ordered that Trump's name appear on the paper checks being rushed to millions of people by the IRS. Those checks could end up being delayed a few days in order to add the president's name to them. In order to add Trump's name, which will appear in typeface rather than as a signature, given the checks are from the Treasury rather than from the president, the code for the IRS's computers must be tweaked and subsequently tested. And wait, it gets worse. On Tuesday the 14th, President Cockwomble announced he's halting funding to the WHO while a review is being conducted. Notes the article by Betsy Klein and Jennifer Hansler. Trump said the review would cover the WHO's role in severely mismanaging and covering up the spread of coronavirus. Trump's announcement came in the middle of the worst global pandemic in decades as he angrily defends his own handling of the outbreak in the United States. Amid swirling questions about whether he downplayed the crisis or ignored warnings from members of his administration about its potential severity, Trump has sought to assign blame elsewhere including the WHO and the news media. Said President Cockwomble, had the WHO done its job to get medical experts into China to objectively assess the situation on the ground and to call out China's lack of transparency, the outbreak could have been contained at its source with very little death. 
The article notes that his decision to withdraw funding from the WHO follows a pattern of skepticism of world organizations that began well before the coronavirus pandemic. Trump has questioned U.S. funding to the United Nations, withdrawn from global climate agreements, and lambasted the World Trade Organization, claiming all were ripping off the United States. Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, who serves in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, said earlier on that day that while the WHO and China made mistakes, Trump is also looking to deflect blame. Murphy added, it's just wildly ironic that the president and his allies are now criticizing China or the WHO for being soft on China, when it was in fact the president who was the chief apologist for China during the early stages in this crisis. Trump said on the 14th, if the WHO had acted appropriately, he, Trump, could have instituted a travel ban on people coming from China sooner. He said the WHO made a dangerous and costly decision to oppose travel restrictions from China, which, uh, could somebody fact check that? I, I think that's something else he made up. Just days before Trump instituted his ban on travelers from China, he was praising the country. On January 24th, Trump tweeted, quote, China's been working very hard to contain the coronavirus. The United States greatly appreciates their efforts and transparency. It will all work out well, in particular on behalf of the American people. I want to thank President Xi. Incidentally, on the same day that uh, Trump announced he was going to suspend payments to the WHO, the United Kingdom announced an additional 65 million pound contribution to the organization. Oh, and by the way, the administration's fiscal year 2021 proposal did plan to cut $65 million to the WHO, which would have been a more than a 50% decrease from fiscal year 2020. This is, now, this, this is the right time to stop funding the WHO, don't you think? Mr. Millen's questioning some of the numbers on that. Uh, another source I have from Reuters notes the U.S. is the biggest overall donor to the Geneva-based World Health Organization. It contributed more than $400 million in 2019, 15% of its budget. So I guess this year there was a cutback, and next year there was also going to be another cutback. And right now, payments are suspended. Does this make sense? Anyway, contrary to what we've been talking about, there have been fact-based discussions of how things have gone down in the Washington Post and, and New York Times of late. And I'm not going to belabor this, but I, I do want to just excerpt the, the piece that the Post did. It noted that on January 3rd of this year, CDC Director Robert Redfield received a call from his counterpart in China with an unambiguous warning about the coronavirus. From that moment, the Trump administration and the virus were locked in a race against a ticking clock, a competition for the upper hand between pathogen and prevention. Yet it took more than two months from that initial notification for President Trump to recognize the coronavirus not as a distant threat or harmless flu strain well under control, but as a lethal force that had outflanked America's defenses and was poised to kill tens of thousands of citizens. That stretch now stands as critical time that was squandered. In fact, the piece notes that it was four weeks later, on the 31st of January, that Alex Azar, Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, announced restrictions barring any non-U.S. citizen who'd been in China during the preceding two weeks from entering the United States. By that point, 300,000 people had come into the U.S. from China during that month. So when you look at the fact that we now have, as of this moment, 640-odd thousand cases here in the United States that have been documented, well, it seems pretty clear that 300,000 people coming in from China during January are probably the reason why, or at least the main reason why. Northern Washington Post, in late January and early February, leaders at 
HHS sent two letters to the White House Office of Management and Budget asking to use its transfer authority to shift $136 million of department funds into pools that could be tapped for combating the coronavirus. Azar and his aides began raising the need for a multi-billion dollar supplemental budget request to send to Congress. Yet White House budget hawks argued that appropriating too much money at once when there were only a few U.S. US cases would be viewed as alarmist. During the State of the Union speech on February 4th, Alex Azar spoke to Russell Vaux, the acting director of the White House OMB. Vaux seemed amenable and told Azar, submit a proposal. He did so the next day, drafting a request for more than $4 billion, a sum that OMB officials and others of the White House greeted as an outrage. Azar arrived at the White House that day for a tense meeting in the Situation Room that erupted in a shouting match. A deputy in the budget office accused Azar of preemptively lobbying Congress for a gigantic sum the White House officials had no interest in granting. The piece notes it would take weeks for the White House to relent, time in which the United States missed a narrow window to stockpile ventilators, masks, and other protective gear before the administration was bidding against many other desperate nations and state officials, fed up with federal failures, started scouring for supplies themselves. Just a couple days after the State of the Union speech on February 6th, The WHO reported it was shipping 250,000 test kits to labs around the world. On that same day in the U.S., more than a month after the CDC got its first clear warning of a threat, the CDC began distributing 90 kits to a smattering of state-run health labs. Sorry, I have to keep pounding away on this. We have to realize why we're in the fix we're in, and we have to realize that we have to do something about it politically. Writing about this in nymag.com, Matt Steeb noted last week that politics seems to infected the federal response to this disaster. Some states with Democratic leaderships have struggled to get what they need from the strategic national stockpile, the country's emergency supply of masks, drugs, and other medical equipment. Massachusetts received 17% of its order and Maine 5%. And then there's Florida, where Trump resides and which has a staunch Trump ally for governor. Its request early in March, which included 430,000 surgical masks and 180,000 N95 respirators, was delivered in full within three days. The cover of the Week magazine this week is about, uh, well, the question of who's in charge during this crisis. The art on the cover shows a bunch of people on the deck of the the ship of state uh, arguing with one another and waves are crashing over the side. Trump looking somewhat like Captain Ahab is staring at the steering wheel of the ship, which seems to be spinning with no one adjusting it. Writing in NBCNews.com, Jonathan Allen said, We're on a ship without a captain. As the death toll mounts, power struggles between Vice President Pence and Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, bidding wars for life-saving equipment, and Trump's refusal to accept any accountability at all have contributed to chaos. And they point to the same conclusion. No one is really in charge in the midst of the most daunting crisis the nation has faced in generations. Frank Bruni in the New York Times said Trump's failings run even deeper. As Americans die by the thousands, he gloats about what huge, rapt television audiences he has, taunts his perceived rivals, demands adulation, and indulges in a one-man orgy of self-congratulation. This is even more horrifying than his incompetence and spouting of blatant falsehoods. It's a failure of basic humanity. Anyway, enough about the cockwomble for a moment. Looking at the numbers themselves, uh, there's been much talk about how a lot of the models are predicting a peak to this crisis about, well, the next week or so. Everyone's admitting April's going to be bad, but some are talking about, you know, things leveling off. 
I was on a lengthy drive last night from, uh, well, parts unknown, and I uh, got a, a lengthy briefing from one of our regular contributors who was scanning through the news while, while I was driving, which was very good for me. He was citing the fact that some of the models are showing things leveling off, and I said, I don't know how that can be when, what, what's the number you just gave me? 2,500 more deaths? That was something like adding 10% to the death total? Didn't seem like leveling off to me. If you run the numbers right now, the U.S. death rate seems to be running at 4.4%. Around the world, that number is 6.5%. The rate of increase in the U.S. is slowing seemingly. It has taken 10 days for the number of cases in the U.S. to double. It only taken the number of five and a half days before that to double. And before that, it doubled in four days. So that's clearly a downward trend. And there are reports that 90% of Americans are under some sort of uh, restrictions. They seem to vary wildly from state to state, jurisdiction to jurisdiction. California continues to do pretty well, relative to the rest of the nation. New York State has now topped 200,000 cases, making it easily the second largest political jurisdiction in the world, ahead of any other country. Well, that's if you accept the figures from China, and we don't. We have reason to believe that the Chinese figures are, are multiple of what has been published. And then, if you're looking at Asia, the number two country now is India. It has reached five figures, about 12,000, and we expect that to, you know, spread across India like a wildfire. And we keep hoping some numbers are going to show up that uh, indicate that, well, these death rates are not as bad as we suspect. Uh, We don't seem to be having any relief coming from the asymptomatic uh, carrier department, since the numbers still seem to indicate only a fraction of the number of people who get sick remain asymptomatic. But like everything else in this, we don't have enough data. We're going to have to see where that goes. Another figure that seems to have been lost in the shuffle, as far as I can see, is the number of people who are dying, not of coronavirus, but from coronavirus. You know, in in these current times, unless you've got an emergency medical condition or a perceived emergency medical condition, good luck getting care. That means it's highly likely we're going to lose people to all sorts of other, you know, non-COVID-related illnesses during this uh, interval. Seems unavoidable. And um, another little bit of not such great news. The Germans have been uh, complimented for the fact that they have more hospital beds, more intensive care beds, I think more ventilators than most other uh, advanced nations in the world. They're somewhere at the top of the list anyway. But as time goes on, and this disease, which does not kill people immediately, starts catching up with folks, it's, it's obvious that the death rate starts to climb. Germany had an extremely low rate, uh, under 1% for a while, but that it then it passed the 1% mark, it's passed the 2% mark, and Germany, as, as we talked before the mic right now, is something like 2.7% death rate. And in the case of the Germans, because they're testing quite extensively, we can have some faith that those are good numbers. Now, we're determined in the minutes we have left in this first segment to interject some good news to all of this. And, you know, for all this talk, which is currently going on about how we expect this to peak, we expect the nation to get back to work slowly, like a dimmer switch, I think Governor Gavin Newsom described it as. You know, it won't be like flipping a switch. We'll gradually get back. Yes, that will happen. And, yes, we're certain to have a, a, a major recession in the, in the economy over this if not a worldwide depression. So it occurred to me that one thing we need to ask of ourselves at this point is, what's so bad about a recession? While driving around 
California yesterday doing some necessary errands. I noticed that the air was exceptionally clear. The pollution levels were way down. The, the, the noise pollution levels everywhere are way down. Traffic is now manageable like it, it was decades ago. Everywhere you go, people are out walking around getting some exercise. Except for the possibility of toilet paper, most of us seem to have, you know, what we need to get by. Yes, I realize this this is very hard times for some people, but for the bulk of the citizenry here in the United States, we are hunkered down in our homes that have heat, have indoor plumbing, have refrigerators, and hopefully everybody has books or access to suitable forms of entertainment. And, you know, a, a little bit of adversity like this and there's going to be a little bit of diversity for all of us, even for those of us who escape any sort of illness. It's not always bad. Yeah, I know it can be said that a lot of good people out there have done nothing to deserve this hardship, which reminds me of what Jack Benny once said. As he was about to receive some sort of gratuitous Hollywood showbizy type award, he commented that, well, I don't really deserve this award, to which he added, but then I also have arthritis, and I didn't deserve that either. Sometimes talking to the clerks in the store and chit-chatting. Uh, well, one one particular really struck me as saying, like, you know, she just hoped that people would realize that, you know, we all have it pretty good. And that we're all going to get through this for the most part. And that, you know, we should we should take what benefit we can from a little adversity that we had to overcome. And really, this could be an opportunity for all of us, you know, with all of a sudden a bunch of free time on our hands to get some things done that we... I've always thought about doing. Maybe it's time for you to sit down and write the great American novel, if you have any such inclinations. TheGuardian.com is reporting that literary agents and book editors are reporting a doubling in daily submissions since social distancing went into effect. To which they added, don't assume you'll be lost in the crowd, though, because some editors have more time while they're working from home. New writers may have a better chance of getting their work read at the moment. They also counsel this may not be the perfect time to pitch a pandemic thriller. And of course, there's all these around-the-house projects that one could get around to. Uh, Here's one I I noted from the Week magazine. (laughs) Paint should be used within two years. You really shouldn't try to store it forever. Latex paint can be put out with the trash, but you have to open the lids to dry it out first. You can use sand or cat litter to absorb large quantities. And uh, consult your municipality on ways to safely discard oil-based paints. But yeah, getting rid of some old paints, that might be a good activity. In fact, it's one I've been engaged in to some degree. Something I need to do but have not yet done so is taking another whack at my emails. Uh, the week noted in another issue that if you're like most people, your inbox is a dumpster fire. You can download an app like Unroll Me and opt out of mailing lists in bulk. But the best way to tackle this is to do it one by one by one. Scan the fine print at the bottom of each email and click on unsubscribe. The Economist suggested, uh, you know, going back and looking at some classics that have been produced over the past few decades uh, via home entertainment. And they suggested I, Claudius, a British television drama of the 1970s about the Roman imperial family based on the novels by Robert Graves. I heard good things about I, Claudius, but but never saw it. Maybe, maybe the next couple of weeks... That, could be worked in. Apparently, PBS.org is going to make uh, Baseball, the film by Ken Burns, available. That would be good. That was an excellent series. And uh, Amazon Prime is apparently going to bring The Prisoner, the 1967 sci-fi classic about a British agent stuck on a mysterious island. Uh, uh, That's something that I certainly could recommend 
that you might want to check out. Something else you may want to consider doing is making out a will if you've never done that. And you may want to consider uh, putting out, putting forth some advanced directives from a medical standpoint. That might be especially uh, valuable in the weeks to come. Well, hopefully not. But uh, in the case that you do find yourself uh, in a bad way in the hospital, it would be nice if you, you know, made your preferences known to the staff. We uh, Got to take a short break, so let's do that. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.